is indeed still morning. Um, at the end of the sermon, whether that, that's true, I do not know. <coughs> I want to, uh, if you will, turn, uh, find two passages in your Bible. I'm, I'm going to need help today. So uh, find Acts chapter 1 and then find the end of Matthew chapter 13. That would be verses 44, 45, and 46. Uh, if you have your bulletin, then you only have to find Acts because uh, Matthew 13:44 is on your program, uh, your bulletin. We ran short uh, this Sunday uh, on bulletins. Uh, people usually travel a lot during this time, and so I think uh, we underestimated the attendance. Oh, I do want to thank God for this opportunity uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand before you and preach this morning. Uh, it is a privilege and it is an honor. It is uh, also very nerve-wracking. It, any, any Saturday night and Sunday just isn't a good time for me. Uh, physically, mentally, just, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, uh, Gardner Taylor calls preaching a burdensome joy. And James Earl Massey describes this as sweet torture of Sunday morning. Uh, so whichever one of those you like the most, that's what I'm going through right now. Uh, but it is a privilege, and uh, the fact that God would allow me to be used in this capacity. He uses all of us. Uh, he uses you, uh, maybe in a different way, but he uses all of us, and it's all very important. Uh, uh, beautiful singing this morning. Uh, I mean, that's, that was just a sample of what we'll be doing for eternity in heaven. I won't be doing much of this in heaven, if any at all. I, I may try to get up and say something every now and then. And all the angels listen to me. An uh, angel will probably tell me to go sit down. Uh, that angel might be Pat Moore, and I don't know. But if Pat tells me to sit down, I will go sit down, I'll tell you that. But uh, we're here today to introduce some to Christianity, to Jesus, to uh, the road to heaven. Heaven isn't the ultimate goal. The goal is eternity in God's presence, and that just so happens to be in heaven. Uh, but if Christ wasn't in heaven, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be there. Uh, Billy Graham speaks of an instance where he was in this old town for a brief moment uh, to preach, and uh, he got there early, so he wanted to send a letter off to a, f- a family or friend. And he sees a little boy, and he asks the little boy, if you can, tell me where the post office is at. And the boy directed him. It's a small town. Just told him a couple of turns to take, and you'll get to the post office. And Billy Graham, the small town, said, well, thank you so much. And, hey, if you come to the Baptist church tomorrow, I'm going to tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy said, I don't think I'm going to be there. You don't even know how to get to the post office. <laughs> so... I know how to get to the post office, and I know how to get to heaven here on this morning. Uh, I thank Alex. I pray for his safety. Uh, he, the pastor, he and his wife and family are uh, out of town uh, in Georgia. Uh, they're they're uh, stomping grounds, old stomping grounds, and so he's uh, enjoying himself there. Uh, to the session, elders and deacons of the church, the lead servants, and all of you that make up this congregation, it is a privilege. Now, here in Acts I have been trying to go through a series. Now, uh, whether or not you consider it a success or not is up to you, but 
what I've done was I wanted to look at the ascension, the doctrine of the ascension. Um, and what I did was I went backwards to uh, let everybody know what I go through in my mind often. And so we started at the bottom, and we worked our way up. Uh, and we started off with, um, uh, where were we, 6 through 11. And we were looking at the men just standing there, and I challenged us not to be caught just standing and looking, but that we ought to be about God's work and that we have so much to do and that uh, now we should not be looking to see if this is the time that the kingdom is here, that, that heaven has come, that, that we, we should be out ministering, doing God's work, teaching and preaching the gospel, baptizing as we go, and uh, leading, making disciples as we go. Uh, that's what the first sermon was. second sermon, we looked at the power of the Holy Spirit and what happens when the Holy Spirit came and when he does come into our lives uh, and what things ought we to look for when the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come revealing itself just by speaking in tongues. Uh, the Holy Spirit, the ultimate evidence of it is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, those things. Um, not necessarily whether or not you can preach, teach, speak in tongues, uh, do backflips. Those things aren't the evidence of the Holy Spirit, although some of those do come with it. Uh, today, I'm going to be looking at uh, the first three verses of the first chapter of Acts, focusing on the last uh, portion of it. Uh, before we do that, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We ask that now you will help us understand the kingdom of God. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, uh, so far and ultimately my goal of this whole three-sermon series that I hope to end today was to introduce you guys to the doctrine and the story of the ascension with hopes that in your own discipline you will go out and learn more about it. Uh, this series, uh, as you many of you know, was very succinct. Like I didn't get a chance to go into great details about this word and that word and this phrase, and I won't be doing that today. I'm going to preach on the kingdom of God. That, that itself is a whole nother series uh, that I can do. In Matthew chapter 13 alone, Jesus gives seven parables about the kingdom of God. All right, so, so I'm just going to try to give a quick, brief overview. Uh, again, there are so many more resources out there that I hope you guys uh, will look into. Uh, secondly, I want to stimulate your mind real quick uh, by challenging you in this passage that we read today and throughout the Bible to look at what the significance of the number 40 means. Uh, Jesus appeared to them during a time period of 40 days. It wasn't consecutive. Don't, don't, try to, don't read that in there. It doesn't say that. In fact, uh, if you want to continue to do some more research, uh, there are many that would uh, agree or, or teach that Jesus 
this isn't his first ascension after his resurrection. This is just the ascension, the great one, the one that he ascended to and doesn't return from. But if you was to dig into the uh, gospel accounts after the resurrection, there is a lot of things that point to the fact that Jesus may have ascended after his resurrection and then came back to his disciples. Uh, one example of that is in John 20, 17. I just, I read to you. Uh, Jesus in John 20, verse 17, tells Mary Madeline, do not cling to me, do not touch me. That word, uh, hopto, is uh, Greek. It means to hold on to, to make physical contact. Do, do not do that, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Then in verse 27, it's eight days later, uh, you find that in verse 26. Eight days later, he appears to the disciples again, and he helps Thomas unbelief, and he tells them to do what? Touch me. So those, those are things like that that are in the scripture that will say, well, did, if Mary couldn't touch him because he hasn't ascended yet, and he tells him about this sin, uh, then he comes uh, to Thomas and says, you can touch me. Does that mean he's already ascended? So uh, you can look at all those things later. You can ask me more questions about it later. Uh, if you want to get on Alex as soon as he gets back from vacation, ask him about it. But what I want to focus on in, the, uh, in this last sermon of the series is verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What about the kingdom of God? So uh, for a brief moment, I want us to look at what Jesus says concerning the kingdom of God in the gospel accounts by looking at the two parables in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. I've already told you that there's seven parables in this. We're just going to look at those two. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven here in Matthew. Matthew uses that phrase the majority of the time, kingdom of heaven. It is synonymous with kingdom of God. It means the same thing. Uh, Jews uh, oftentimes were very hesitant to use God's name. They didn't want to use it. Uh, so they, as a matter of fact, when they was writing, they did not write Yahweh. They would actually put, which is was God's name, they would spell it Adonai, but they would, it's, it's weird, but they would put the consonants in Adonai, but the vowels would match up with Yahweh. So, so we can know that when you see in the Old Testament, all capital Lord, that's Yahweh. But the Jews were very hesitant to use God's name, Yahweh. They would say Elohim, which is a generic term of God. It can be plural. Uh, so here, Matthew, he doesn't say kingdom of God. He doesn't like to use that word God. So he says kingdom of heaven. Uh, they often found words that would get the same point across. So here in Matthew, we find him say kingdom of heaven. But in the Gospels, the total gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is used over 80 times. Uh, so it's a lot that can be spoken of concerning the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Uh, I commend you to do that. John the Baptist comes in on the scene in Matthew 3, 2, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in chapter 4, the very next chapter, comes out of the wilderness and says the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then spends his time in the next few chapters, we know it as the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, saying nothing but things concerning the kingdom of heaven. 
blessed is, is the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, this won't be in the kingdom of heaven. This will be in the kingdom. And he goes on and on about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, John Piper has a sermon called, The Kingdom of Heaven is a Treasure. He has a series called, The Kingdom of Heaven is. Uh, but in the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. He gives four points for us to uh, look or know when we're looking at the term kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Here's the four points. It refers to God's reign or his rule. It's not a realm or a place. So when he says the kingdom of heaven is a hand, it's not talking about a place. It's talking about God's, Jesus' lordship, his kingship. That is a hand. His kingdom is at hand. And it's not referring to his entire kingdom. Because if, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, then you know that God's kingdom is the entire galaxy, the entire everything, infinity. That's his kingdom. They're speaking about a specific kingdom here, and this kingdom is the salvation kingdom, the redemptive kingdom, the redemptive salvation reign. All right? Third, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ is the same kingdom. So when Christ says the kingdom of God is at hand, He's also saying, my kingdom is at hand. Don't, don't think that he's talking about one kingdom, then, then Christ got a different kingdom. It's the same kingdom. And lastly, the kingdom is present and future. Now, that is probably the hardest part for us to deal with as, as Christians today and even for those back then. It's hard because you want me to believe that the kingdom has come, but at the same time, it is coming. It's the whole doctrine of already but not yet. Many of you have heard of that. So you hold your Bible in one hand and you read it, and the kingdom of God is here. Christ has come. Christ has defeated Satan, right? But then you read the newspaper in this hand, and you're like, it's, that's not true. You turn on the news. You see so much violence, pain, and suffering. And somehow you have to believe that the kingdom of God has come. John the Baptist went through the same thing in Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, has come and is preaching the same message John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John is in prison. So John sends messengers and they, and they ask uh, they told Jesus that John wants to know this. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another one? If you're the king, the new Messiah, why am I in prison? And so he, he asked the same question that many of us ask today. Why must I go through suffering? If God is on the throne, if he's the sovereign one, if he is the king of all the galaxy, why are people getting away with murder? Why is there pain and hurt? Why are there Christians across the world being killed for what they believe? If the kingdom of God is already at hand, if God is truly on the throne, why is this going on? Uh, a, a rapper named KB, he summarizes Timothy Keller's chapter on suffering, I think it's chapter 7 in his book, Reasons for God. And KB summarizes this chapter by saying this, I might not know what the answer is, but I know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't care or that he's non-existent. Suffering is a problem and why many are rejecting God, but just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't one. What if God's plan for pain isn't for you to skip it? 
we need the nightmare to appreciate not being in it. The deeper the pain, the deeper the gain upon its ending. Plus, God takes our pain so serious that he joins us in it. Jesus preaches that there will be pain and suffering. But none more than what he would have to go through. The kingdom of heaven is here, but the process is not complete. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says this, At present we do not see everything in subjection to him. 1 John 3 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and we will be, has, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So already Jesus reigns, but not yet in his final kingdom. Already sin has been defeated, but it has not been completely destroyed. Already God has given you his word, but it has not yet totally transformed your life. Already you have been given peace, but not yet has uh, that grace finished its work in you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus on its completion. So keep these four points in mind as we look at the parable today. Remember points, uh, point one, this is God's reign, his rule, not a place or a realm. Point two, it is the saving, redemptive reign. Point three, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ is the same. And point four, it is present and it is future. So Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, a couple of things stand out immediately when we read these parables. Let me read them to you one more time. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So a couple things stand out immediately. The first thing is the main point, uh, if not the only point, which is Jesus wants us to know from these two parables that the kingdom of God is so valuable that nothing compares to his word. Nothing. The second thing that stands out is that the two men found an incomparable treasure different ways. The first seems to have happened upon it in his normal daily routine. It, it appears that he may have been working in someone's yard. He may have been digging up someone's field, plowing someone's field. He hit this metal or whatever, realized, hey, this is not an ordinary rock. Let me see what's under here. And he found a treasure. He happens upon it. The second was looking for treasure. And as he was looking for treasure, he happened upon the most beautiful thing he has ever seen in his life. How many of you can relate to this fact? People discover the treasure that is Jesus, that is the truth of Jesus in different ways. They discover it different ways. Someone was not looking for a God, and out of nowhere, Jesus changed their heart. 
Some people look for God or a God their whole life, and out of nowhere, Jesus changes their heart. Some people grew up in a Christian home and have been going to church since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, and Christ, at a young age, changes their life. So many ways people have come to the truth that is Christianity. Someone is just so happened to go to church with a friend because they love their friend, not knowing that by the end of the day they would discover a greater and eternal love. Someone went to church just to be argumentative towards the preacher about his sermon, not knowing that he would believe in the absolute truth on that day. So many ways people have come to the truth that is Christianity. I know people that at one point were atheists. And all of a sudden they had a dream about Jesus. And the next day they came running and said, what must I do to be saved? I know people that prayed to Christ to show that he is real and he did something miraculous that moment and they gave their lives over to him. I know rebellious children that for years ran from their father like the prodigal son, but they came back crying and repented. So many ways people have come to the truth that is Christianity. But notice this. No matter how they came to the truth, the reaction was the same. The discovery was different, but the reaction was the same. They recognized the great worth and sold everything they had with joy because they knew that nothing can outdo this treasure. Nothing is more valuable than this treasure. You see, it's not enough just to discover Jesus. Commitment requires us to recognize his great worth. The kingdom of God is so valuable that nothing compares to his worth. Now, the point is not that the kingdom can be bought. Do not get that from these parables. The kingdom belongs to those that are poor and have nothing. The point is to show that you must want the kingdom more than anything else in this galaxy. The point is Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. That's the point of this parable. So the first parable says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that is hidden. And it is hidden. This man was not walking around and just saw it laying on the ground. That's not what happened. Someone didn't give him a map and said, find the X on the map and you will find the treasure. That's not what happened. It was hidden. Many, many others could not see this treasure. In fact, the man that owned the land had no clue that the treasure was there. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The treasure is, is hidden. The truth is hidden. And at least unless the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you, 
You can't see it. You won't find it. They cannot see the truth. The truth is foolish to them. So he finds treasure in a field. What he does? He buried back in the field. He then, in his joy, goes and sells all that he has and buys that land. I want to uh, talk about, address a couple of things real quick before I go. Uh, for some of you, it won't be important, but for some, they have a couple of questions in the back of their head. The first is, why would someone just have treasure buried in the middle of the field? Many of us would not grasp the concept because we don't bury our treasure and jewelry in our yard, right? We have banks. We have safety deposit boxes that we put those things in. But back then, they had no banks. They had no safety deposit box. And ancient Palestine was a country that was frequently ravaged by war. They were always in war. And a lot of times they were losing. And so people, not knowing how the outcome of the war would be, will often hide their treasure in the field because their houses would be searched and raided. It's not safe in the house. But if you had a spot that you can remember, you got to remember it now, then you can go back later and dig it up. So uh, here's a couple of examples. Remember in, in the parable in Matthew 25 when Jesus tells the story of the master who gave talents, gave coins, gave a certain amount of, of money to uh, his uh, servants? And they all, all of them did something with it except for one. What did he do? He buried it. He did not invest it. He was worried that I may lose it, someone may take it from me. I'm going to just bury it and hide it. So this is a concept that the audience Jesus preached to understands. Uh, Josephus, the great historian, you can type in Josephus on buried treasure. That's what I did and got this quote. He says this, and it's on more than one website, so the Internet is true on this one. Of the vast wealth of the city, no small portion was still being discovered among the ruins. Much of this the Romans dug up. But the greater part they became possessed of through the information of the prisoners. Prisoners would tell them, I have treasure here to here. If, if you let me go, I'll get it. Or you can go get it, find it, and then will you let me go? Uh, so things like that. And then he says this. Gold and silver and other most precious articles, which the owners, in view of the uncertain fortunes of war, had stored underground. So people buried this all the time. So that's the first clarification I want to make. The second question is, isn't Jesus teaching a parable about a man being dishonest? He's on someone else's property. He finds treasure. He doesn't go tell that person. In fact, he goes, hurry up and hide it again, and then he buys the property from the person so he can get the treasure. Isn't this guy being dishonest? First, I would like to emphasize that when you're dealing with a parable, the details are never meant to be as stressed out as I'm doing. It has one main point, and, uh, and all the other points are secondary. Most of them don't mean anything. But to be safe, I will argue this. The man in Jesus' parable is actually being far more noble than he has to be. Where do I get this from? Well, if you was to go to the Jewish virtual library online, uh, or other Jewish resources, but I had a laptop. The Jewish rabbinic law states this, and it's in more than one website, so it's true. 
the Jewish rabbinic law says this. If a man finds scattered treasure, or excuse me, scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. And it goes into more details on how much and all this stuff. But basically, if you find it in the Jewish time, you get to keep it. Why? Because most of the time they have no way of proving who it belongs to. People all the time, like I said, dug stuff and hid it. Sometimes the owner would die. Sometimes the person would be killed in war. Sometimes the person would move and forgot where he buried it. So if you just happen upon buried treasure or something scattered on the ground, it's yours. Now, I wish I would have learned this a long time ago because I used to give people stuff back all the time. <laughs> if it's a wallet, you give it back to them. Like, keep all the stuff in it because it has their name. But if you don't know who the $20 bill is, pick it up and keep it. Don't say Jesus told you to do it. All right. So this is what I'm saying. This is why I'm saying the man is more noble. The man did not have to buy the field. He could have just taken the treasure, got on his horse or camel, and went off into the sunset. Right? He could have. Instead, he does this. He sells all that he owns to buy the field. So that whatever is on the field belongs to him, namely the treasure. Why did he sell all that he owned? If it was someone less Christian or someone that wasn't in Jesus' story, then they may have taken some of the treasure and went and pawned it and, and brought the field with that. And then kept the remaining treasure. He did not have to go through the process of selling everything he owned to get this field that has his treasure. But this man saw something that he really wanted. And he went after it the right way. This man sells all that he has and he buys the treasure. Now, it's obvious that the treasure did not belong to whoever owned the field or else what? He would have dug it up before he sold it. So that's another evidence that this guy just has no idea that the treasure is there. So in this parable, the man sells all that he has. Well, watch this. He wasn't making a sacrifice. There was no sacrificing in this. The Bible says that he sells all that he has. He sells in joy. Can you imagine this? This man is going to the place where others have to liquidate their items and, uh, and possessions, and he's walking in happy. The repo truck is coming to his yard, taking his camel or whatever, and he's happy? Can you imagine this? This guy is not sacrificing. How can it be sacrificing when he is gaining? He understands that he is getting a much better deal than what he originally had. It's not sacrificing if I trade in my bike and get a Ferrari. Like that's not me saying, oh, I had this bike so long. It's just going so hard for me to let go. No, here, here's the bike. That's not a sacrifice, trading a cardboard box for a mansion. That's the parallel I'm trying to give you guys here. The kingdom of heaven isn't about losing or suffering or ending up on the short end of the stick. That's not what's happening here. The kingdom of heaven is about making the sweetest deal in your life. He is no fool, C.S. Lewis says, I believe, who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. All right, somebody, you can quote, uh, correct that quote later. Who said it? There we go, Jim Elliott. 
So there is a fool in the building, maybe. The kingdom of heaven is about the best trade you'll ever make. The kingdom of heaven is trading hell for heaven. Do you realize that? It's about trading death for life. It's about trading temporary garbage for eternal riches. It's about trading bondage for freedom, shame for joy, rejection for acceptance. It's about trading your fear and emptiness for the love that never disappoints. It's not sacrifice. You're getting a great deal here. As I finish up this parable, it appears to me that the man does not fully know the worth of the church he has found, but he is willing to sell all that he has for it. He finds treasure. I doubt he has time to sit there and count out how much is there to see what all is in it. He don't have time for all of that. He finds his treasure, realizes his treasure, doesn't know the value, and puts it back in. But one day he knows he's going to finish paying for the field. He's going to buy the land. He's going to dig up the treasure. Then one day he's going to be able to lay out piece by piece the treasure, and he will then see the treasure. See, it's not I would never know how much it costs. Instead, it is right now we know in part, and one day we will know in full. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. See, right now a lot of us don't understand what it is that we've, we've given up and what it is that we have gained. We don't understand that right now. Sometimes we feel like we're foolish. Sometimes we begin to question, did I make the right decision? We don't know. This man has given everything he has for some treasure. And one day he's going to realize how much that treasure is worth. Robert Machaney, an awesome preacher, pastor, passed away uh, at a young age. I played some of his... uh, his year Bible uh, reading, how to read the Bible in the year. I placed some of those out on the table in the foyer if you want to pick it up. He has a poem that talks about, then I will know how much. And I won't read all of it, but let me read some of it. When this passing world is done, when has sunk young glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking over life's finished story, Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and the hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. One day we will know what it is that we give up, and we're going to be so happy. So happy, in fact, that after 10,000 years of being glad about it, we'll still be as glad as the first day we was there. 
Lastly, we see a man that is searching for pearls, plural. He is searching for pearls. He's a merchant. He does this. He goes and buys pearls. During that time, the pearls, the equivalent of diamonds. Uh, pearls, you, got, you get them, you can make a lot of money off of them. He's searching for pearls until the moment he sees the pearl. There are so many religions and gods, but there's only one true God. And when Buddha fails you, try Jesus. When Muhammad and Allah fails you, try Jesus. When money and your family and friends fails you, try Jesus. He was looking for fine pearls. Then he found one pearl. And he knew, I got to have it. I got to have it. He sold everything he had to get this one pearl. He's supposed to be a businessman. That's not a smart investment. To put all your money, all everything you own into one stock. But he does because he found that one thing that he was, he's been looking for all his life. He's been finding pearls over here. He's been finding little pearls over there. He's been finding pearls here and there. But then he found the one that's going to complete him. And make him happy for the rest. He said, I got to have it. He sold everything he had for this one pearl. Now, this pearl, pearls are a big deal, like I said in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus said this. Do not cast your pearls among swine, pigs. Somebody read their Bible once. And so he's trying to show the contrast between the most valuable thing that they knew of during that time compared to the most filthy thing they knew of during that time. Pigs weren't nasty to them just because they rode in mud. Remember, they had no part to do with pork, swine, bacon, God bless them. In 1 Timothy, we see that women put pearls in their braids to show off their wealth. Paul said, no, you got to be more modest than that. Cleopatra, in history, won a bet against Mark Anthony. She told him that she could provide a banquet that cost more than the assets of a country. This is how she did it. She took off her pearl earring that she had. Some say estimated in today's time about $500 million, one pearl. She put it in a glass of wine. What does the wine do? Vinegar, wine, stuff. What does it do to pearls? Dissolves it. And she drank it. That was more, more than the entire country. People did that back then. You will have people that would show off how much money they had. So what they would do is get a pearl, put it in a glass of wine, and drink it after it dissolved. It's the equivalent of idiots, well, unless you do it. Well, idiots uh, that get $100 of bills. You may see this on TV, but you may actually know someone that would get $100 bills, like more than one, roll them up, light them on fire, and use that to light their cigar just to show off, I have $100. It's, a, it's not as close because it's not $500 million. But people did that. So pearls were valuable. The pearl is probably one of the most appropriate figure for the kingdom that Jesus could use here. Because it is the only gem that cannot be improved by man. All other jewels must be cut and polished by skilled craftsmen before they can have a retail value as a gemstone. But a pearl is perfect when it's found, and it cannot be improved by cutting or polishing it. In fact, if a human did anything to a pearl, it becomes worthless. The parable, as the first one, 
gets us to look deep down inside of our hearts and ask ourselves, how much is the kingdom worth to us? We must make a purchase. Not with money. You can't buy your way into heaven. Not with works. You can't work your way into heaven either. See, it's not, it's not given by money or, or words, lest any man should boast. But you got to make a purchase. There is a cost. Our possessions can't pay for it. God asks for something from us. He asks for our comfort. He asks for our devotion. Here's here, catch this. He asks for everything. The cost is that you give everything that you have to gain everything that Christ have. And Christ gave us the perfect model to follow because he gave all that he had for all that we deserve. He gave up his riches so that through faith in him we can become rich. He took on our sin. So that we can be sinless. He took on our guilt so that we could be declared innocent. The kingdom requires a great price. And Christ paid that price once and for all when he died for our sins. The great treasure, Christ, bought me so that I can buy the great treasure. Father, we thank you. We love you. Take away all the vanity in our lives, in our heart. We thank you for the many blessings and gifts you've given us. But Father, if they ever become worth more to us than you, take it away. Call us to repentance. Purge our lives from idols. In your darling son, Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.